want to invite you to open your Bibles to First uh, Peter chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, we'll be going through the books of First and Second Peter. Uh, we are a good ways in and uh, have been really challenged by it, I believe. I want to encourage you, you can pick up a study guide on the way out uh, that walks you through each week's uh, sermon teaching. Uh, as well as uh, digs into that scripture. It's useful in two ways. Uh, one is to use just as a personal Bible study to dig further into God's word. But our primary intention with that is that you would jump into a life group, get involved in a small group, and that you would use that uh, with one another as you grow and hold each other accountable, encourage one another to live faithfully in the mission Jesus has given us and support one another in prayer. Uh, so this is also just a reminder that life groups are a very important part of what we do. Uh, we do at times struggle to get people connected into life groups quickly. Uh, part of that is because we need more people uh, ready and willing to host and to lead groups. And so just to encourage you uh, to consider joining us uh, next Sunday as we try to raise up more people to make disciples, to reach our community and to reach the nations. That's why we're here as a church. If you're new with us, our, our reason for existence, our purpose is that is to glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nations. That's why God has planted us here, and that's what our commitment to strive towards is. So I want to just jump into 1 Peter chapter 4 with, with that laid out for you and, and walk you through where we've been. We've spent a few weeks dealing with the reality of suffering. And I find that a sermon on suffering is generally, generally okay, and it's generally welcome. But this is, I believe, the fourth uh, and so it can again kind of get tiring to continually come because let's be honest, when we go to church, we want to leave high fiving one another that things are going to be great. Right. That's what we leave wanting. That's a natural innate response for most of us. Now, some of us have uh, become so cynical that that we can't stand that kind of happiness. And that's our own problem. Um, but there is this easy-to-sell Christianity that tells you everything's going to be great. You stay positive, you keep smiling, and everything's going to work out in a way that you would have called it. Now, the problem with that is when we read the story of the Bible. Because you'll notice all of these really faithful men and women didn't have the easy life. Every week was not a three-day weekend for them. They had a difficult time. So let me just walk you through some of these people. Peter, who writes this book, uh, Peter left his, his probably profitable commercial fishing job. His business that he had going with his brother so that he could follow Jesus, who admittedly had no place to stay and no means of income. He endured great hardship and was eventually crucified because of his faith in Jesus. The Apostle Paul was an up-and-coming religious star in Judaism. He meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. He goes blind for a while. That's a good way to start your walk with the Lord. Then the Lord miraculously heals him and sets him towards a course of being a missionary to take the gospel throughout uh, the continent of Asia and part of Europe. God used him mightily. And he was killed for it. You see, you can't read the stories of the men and women in the Bible and walk away believing that faithfulness to the Lord Jesus always results in physical health and blessing. Now, the Bible is clear that there is a blessing for those who suffer. Jesus says that, that blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you 
when people revile and slander you and hate you for my name. That's what Jesus says. And he says that for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. So there is a blessing for those who endure hardship for the sake and name of Jesus. But this life is hard. So if you're tired of hearing that message because you know it all too well, this is the last week of it. And we'll shift to something new in uh, the book of First Peter next week. But it's an important reminder for us. So what I want us to do is to simply read uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll, we'll dig in the, into them together. Verse 1 begins, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, for living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached to those who are dead, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God has supplied. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever. Amen. As he wraps up his kind of section on the book, dealing with the reality of suffering as being Christians, faithfully following Christ in a fallen world, he closes with these words. Where yet again, he reminds us of Christ's suffering. So you notice that? He, he begins saying, look, do you remember that Jesus suffered physically? He suffered in the flesh. He died for you. And, and no less than three times in the preceding two chapters prior to that has he mentioned the suffering of Jesus. So every time he kind of talks about hardship and suffering, Peter's response as a pastor is, hey, you know that Jesus suffered, right? Do you remember that Jesus suffered? It, it's like this drum that he beats. Oh, things are hard. Okay, hey, you know, Jesus suffered, which I think might be annoying. Like you go to Peter for counsel and you're like, oh, this is horrible. I'm having this struggle with my wife. My kids are doing this or the job's that way. And his first response is, hey, you know, Jesus suffered. And then when I meet with him next week with a new problem, his response is not, oh, I'm sorry. He says, you know, Jesus suffered. And so I want to maybe unpack why I think Peter keeps beating this drum dealing with suffering. This is the fourth time in just a few verses that he points to it. The first is that Jesus suffered to save us. And we can't ever forget that Jesus suffered to save us. That his death on the cross was not simply an injustice of cosmic proportion, but rather it was his willful choice to save sinners so that God's righteous wrath could be poured out on him for those who would believe. Right. So Jesus paid for our sin by his suffering to redeem us. And when we remind ourselves over and over again that Jesus suffered, what we're telling ourselves is that God loves us. 
And in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship, when it's easy to question whether or not God is good, whether or not God is kind, whether or not God is loving, Peter says, you know he is because Jesus suffered to save you. He sent his only son to die on a cross for you. Could he do anything more to demonstrate his affection for you? I mean, is there anything greater that we could do? I can't think of one. We have five children. And I could think of scenarios in which I would risk my life to save someone else's, but I cannot think of a single scenario in which I would put one of them at risk to save any of you. I can't. And, and I think I'm a pretty loving, caring guy. And, and I would think most of you mothers and fathers out there, you probably put yourself in the same boat. You could imagine dying to save someone, but you would not offer up your child. This is a supernatural. This is a confusing. This is a, a significant, infinite love that he demonstrates in the simple reminder that Jesus suffered to save us. Second, knowing that Jesus suffered... We know that he understands our suffering. So not only do we have a savior in Jesus, we have a companion. We have a friend who's walked through our trails with us. He knows what we go through. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus was a man of sorrows who was well acquainted with suffering. So when we endure it, we run to a Lord who knows what we're going through. When a friend or someone you love betrays you and turns on you, Jesus knows what that's like. When you have a medical issue and you approach significant physical pain and imminent death, Jesus has been there. He's endured this life, he's gone through hardship, and he knows our suffering. The Bible refers to Jesus as our high priest, as the one who's gone into heaven before the Father on our behalf. The idea in in biblical terms is one of intercession, that he is an intermediary between us and God the Father. Maybe to make sense of that, we cannot access God directly on our own because of our sin. Jesus has come between and by his blood, paying for our sin, we have access and boldness before the throne of God. Not because we're good, not because we tried hard, but because Jesus has died to save us. And now God sees us through the lens of Jesus' blood, of Jesus' sacrifice for us. That intermediary role is the role of a priest, to go before the Father on behalf of his people. The Bible says that Jesus constantly lives to make intercession for us so that he is always and forever before the throne of God, pleading his blood over us. That's how we stay secure in our salvation. It's not because we're great and we got saved and now we don't sin anymore. Or if we do, we pay it back. That's that's not how the relationship works. It works because Jesus' blood has saved us and he constantly stands before the throne of God, interceding for us. Applying the blood again and again and again to our sins so that we're cleansed. It's a constant ongoing ministry that Jesus has currently. And when you think of that depiction of Jesus as this priest who who makes payment or atonement for the sin of the people, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us something very important about Jesus in this role. In chapter 4 verse 14. So since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. So let's stick with the faith. I know it's hard. Stick to it because look at what Jesus has done for you. And this is what it says in verse 15, to comfort those suffering 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect, respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So in your moment of hardship or suffering, in your moment of weakness, Jesus is there going before the throne of the Father on your behalf, pleading His blood over you. And He says He does this not as one who is detached and unaware of what our sufferings are, but rather one who has experienced them yet did not sin. So when we go to suffering and we remind ourselves of Jesus' suffering, there's a few things we're doing. One is we are reminding ourselves... That Jesus saved us. And that in Jesus we see the love and compassion of God towards us. That God cares deeply more than we can imagine. We have Jesus as our Savior. We also look to Jesus' suffering. We're reminded of His great love for us and how He endured hardship. And Jesus is our example. And He's also our friend. Our friend who understands what we're going through, who pleads with us, and he's our priest before the throne of God. And by his work and suffering for us, Jesus has done a work not only for us, but one in us. So as sin presents itself, the ministry of Jesus is significant. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the scriptures tell us that we are, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So, so the moment you trusted in Jesus, that you said, okay, it's, it's not about me trying uh, to be good. And so then if I'm good enough, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, God will be pleased with me. That's not the Bible. That's karma. Uh, or, or oh, you know what? If I just do enough religious stuff, like if I'm religious enough, if I do the right ceremony in the right way and we do it regular enough, then, then God will know that we're devoted to him and he'll look down on us and he'll have compassion. Well, that's a backwards view of God. The Bible says that God, rich in mercy, looked down upon us full of sin. Scriptures say dead in our trespasses. And he sent his only son to die for us to pay the penalty. That, that's the end of the story. And that if you believe in him, Simply trust Him to save you. Quit running from God. Quit striving to earn His affection. Just trust that He loves you and follow Him. That He's done all the work needed to save you. And that He'll do all the work needed to keep you in that relationship with Him. Now we follow Him. And we want to be obedient to Him. We want to be faithful to Him because we love Him. Because He's our Father. And because any kind of remotely healthy father-child dynamic, you want to please your father. That's how it works. Well, our kids, they, they all express that in different ways. Jack really, he wants to impress me with his thinking as he comes up with ways to do things. As he does something, he wants me to be pleased with what he's done and what he's produced. But he wants his father to be happy with him. Caden just wants to be like me. So, so he'll watch what I wear and then later in the day he's wearing as close as he can get to that outfit. Or if I'm going to do something, he wants to be with me. Claire wants to dance and, 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 and act silly in front of me and she wants to hear you're beautiful. She, pretty is okay, but beautiful. Lila just wants you to hold her. She wants you to be with her. Whatever. But she wants you to be pleased with her. She wants you to enjoy her. And that's, that's how it works in the family dynamic unless there's something wrong. And so God is our Father. He's made us His. He's made us this new creation. So we follow Him, not because we're trying to earn His love, but because we've received it and it's changed us. That's what Second Corinthians says. 
God's love transforms the sinful broken heart to make it a heart that desires to obey. So Jesus has saved us. So what's the challenge now? And now that we know that, now that that's established for us as Christians, we go from that foundation. The challenge then in the midst of suffering is to embrace this new life. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3 through 6. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. For living in sensualities, passions, drunkenness, orgies. You didn't think I'd say that twice on Sunday. Drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. He said, look, this old life that you had before Jesus, that was enough time to run around wasting. Wasting on sinful desires, wasting trying to feed appetites for passions that in the end never get satisfied. He said, that was enough time. You've had plenty of time for that. Now you need to walk in godliness. You need to pursue Christ, even though others will want you to join in it with them. You need to hold firm. I think Peter understands for us that in moments of hardship, it is tempting to fall back into sin patterns that used to dominate us. I mean, when the chips are down, when we begin to question whether or not God is good, whether or not God is in control, there is a natural tendency in us, whatever it is, to kind of go back into that sin pattern. So uh, as a family, we've kind of walked through with some people that we love, some people we're close to, uh, the whole drug addiction cycle. And one of the things that it took over time is noticing and, and not being scared that if something happened to this person I loved who, who had been hooked on cocaine, that we didn't get worried that they were going to go out and buy like, and it took 18 months, two years of this person being clean before, before something bad happening to them didn't kind of stir this yearning and this fear in me that they would run back to it because we'd seen this cycle before. And you say, well, that's crazy. That's drug addiction. We're all sin addicts. Just different sins. And so some of us, we, we, we struggle. Things go bad at work. We, we have to stop at the bar on the way home. Because Lord knows we can't seek peace in Jesus, so we need it in a bottle. Or for some of you, it's going to be sexual immorality. For, for some of you, it's going to be a struggle with just controlling things. Something goes bad. I didn't exert enough control. Well, you're not in charge, so it's okay. For some of you, it's going to be buying stuff. There's this empty hole. Some relationships is damaged. I'll show him and I'll get the visa card. We'll fix this. And here, what's the problem? You got all this debt. You got all this stuff. Nothing's fixed. We have this tendency to fall back into sinful patterns, into fleshly desires when the chips are down. Peter's aware of that. And he says, hey, don't, don't fall into that. He also points out some of your so-called friends who maybe love you as best they can, but they don't love the Lord are going to invite you into that. You had a tough day at work, man. Let's... let's Let's go hit up happy hour. The kids don't need to see you. They're fine with their mom. Oh, you, things, are, things are going bad with your husband. You know what you need? You need a new car. Why don't you give him to buy you a new car? That leather upholstery will fix the fact that you and your husband can't get along. The kids are bothering you. You know what? Let's go out. Let's just go have a great big lunch. Let's just go. You notice that we never talk about gluttony, by the way. Let's just go, I mean, we can medicate this stuff with sugar, caffeine, food, bacon, whatever it is. 
right? And, and, and what happens, though? Nothing. Nothing good. And, and here's the net of it, is we end up self-medicating with poison. That's what the sin patterns, we self-medicate with poison. The greatest example I've ever seen of this in history is this, is that back in about the 1910s, 1920s, there was a real problem with alcoholism in America. So you know what? We introduced a miracle drug to fix the problem. Anybody know what it was? Heroin. Awesome. We introduced the most addictive, devastating drug in the history of mankind to treat alcoholism, which is bad, but not as bad as heroin addiction. They thought this would work. That's the same kind of nonsense we do. When things get bad, when things get down, we start to run back to sin. But here's the problem is it leads us down the cycle where at the end of it, things are just worse. And now we've got kind of guilt and shame piled on top of it. And you'll see in a moment that guilt and shame will begin to push us away from believers who love us. Because we think we're the only people who struggle this way. So we'll find ourselves devastated, depressed, and alone. And it's our own doing. Peter says, don't do that. Don't look inwardly. Look to Jesus. Remember the mission that he's given you. Embrace this new identity that you have in Christ. Yes, obedience to Jesus will live to criticism. He's already told us that's blessing. That's a blessing. But where do we turn? So we remember our new identity. Next, we remember the mission we've been given. Look at verses 6 and 7. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. For the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You could say a lot about that, but maybe keep it simple and straightforward. The Bible tells us that judgment is coming for sinners. That God is patient, but there is a day in which we will all stand before God and be judged. For some of us, it will be at death. And by God's grace, we pray that Jesus will come before then. We'd love to see him uh, soon. And that would mean that some would be judged at that moment. He says that's why the gospel is preached. Because people will be judged for their sin. God is a God of compassion. And so he's made a way for people to be saved. And it's through the work of Jesus dying. Those hearing the truth and responding in faith. That's the simple message of salvation. Is that you heard the gospel of what Jesus had done for you and you believed. You trusted. So he says that, that's why the gospel is preached. And it says the Bible says it's preached to those who are dead. Well, wait, wait a minute. How do we preach to dead people? You ever share the gospel with anyone who's never believed in Jesus? That's what you're doing. The book of Ephesians chapter 2 explains to us a principle about who we are outside of Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. It says, But God, rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. You notice that? What is our position outside of God? We are dead. So that when the gospel is preached to non-believers, it is preached to dead people. Because we are spiritually dead. We have death as our future, not the life that Jesus offers us. It says, By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Think about that. The Bible says that we were dead in our sin and that through the death of Jesus and his conquering of Satan's sin and death, that we were made God's children, that he made us his. He made us alive with him. 
So we were dead and distant and he made us alive and near. For what reason? So he can continue to show us for the ages his kindness towards us. Like he saved us so that for eternity he could lavish his love and kindness upon us. Through Jesus. And then it says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. So God has arranged salvation in such a way that he accomplishes it all, and all we do is simply receive it by faith so that we can't brag. We didn't do anything. We are recipients of a gift. If we brag on anything, we brag about the God who gave the gift to us. I've seen that with kids. You ever notice that after Christmas when kids get together like the first day of school after Christmas and everybody's got whatever their new thing that they, that they bought was and they snuck the gadget like, like the remote control car is in the backpack even though mom said you can't take it. Because the kid wants to show off what they got. But if done right, the kids, what are they doing? They're bragging about the generosity of the gift giver. Look what my grandma gave me. Right? It's not about me, hopefully, but we're bragging about the gift giver. We didn't earn it. We didn't buy this. This was a gift. So we can't boast. If we boast in anything, it's in the God who saved us and in his generosity. Richard Baxter, a great preacher in England in the 1600s, said this way. He resolved to always preach as a dying man to men who were also dying. So the gospel was preached to the dead because um, non-believers, all of us outside of Jesus, are in fact dead and in need of life. That's that new creation the scriptures refer to. It also tells us to stay focused and live in this new life because of our prayers. See, in the gospel of John, Jesus made tremendous promises about prayer and his willingness to answer our prayer. In John chapter 15, verse 7, the scriptures tell us Jesus is talking now. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. See, Jesus, he lays it all on the table. He's all in. He says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, if you're committed to living fruitfully to honor me, whatever you ask, my Father will give you. Now, what Peter's telling us is that that relationship of God answering your prayers and God consistently responding into your prayers. He says, you jeopardize that whole thing when you walk away from the mission. See, this isn't about Jesus giving us a Bentley. This is about Jesus allowing us to be fruitful in him, to abide in him, that if our heart is transformed to, to be like his, then his promise to us, you pursue me, my father will give you what you need. He will give you what you ask for if what you ask for is to be fruitful, to be passionate, to seek me. But you go walking away from that and you jeopardize it. John Piper has described prayer as a, as a wartime walkie-talkie. He said the Bible's depiction of our engagement in the world is one of war. That that's what the spiritual life is like. And he said the problem is, is that in the modern church we've taken what was intended to be a radio from field forces to headquarters and we've turned it into an intercom to ring the butler and ask for another pillow. He said it doesn't work that way. It wasn't designed for that. So prayer, the whole thing haywires when we walk away from the mission. Because God doesn't exist to give us the idols that we worship instead of him. He won't do it. He loves us too much to say yes to that. But he will give us that which gives us the greatest joy, which is walking with him 
in joy and obedience. The last exhortation here is to remain in your new family. So you've got a, a new identity. You've got a new mission and now you've got a new family and you can't walk away from the new family. Verses 8 through 11 begins to address how we walk with one another in the midst of hardship. Above all. So when you see above all, I would assume that's relatively important. Above all. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we've already seen there's this tendency and hardship to turn inward, right? To begin to focus on ourselves, to begin to run back to our sin, to begin to forget Jesus. The other side of that is that those sins, if we pursue them, will pull them aw- us away from the community of faith that God has established us in for our good. Like, I don't know if you get this, but God didn't like, create the church for your entertainment. He didn't create the church to schedule activities for your children. He didn't create the church to serve you in particular. Rather, he created the church so that we together would advance the gospel more effectively than apart. And part of that is the way we interact with and love one another. Yes, the Christians should be served through the church because we should serve one another. But none of us get to come as consumers. The Bible has depicted the Christian in the church as a family relationship. Earlier on in 1 Peter, he reminds us to have a brotherly love towards one another. This is a familial connection that we have. And I'd like to draw two comparisons for you of how families operate. One is around dinner. Right? Growing up, um, mom cooked big dinners. You always knew she was making vegetables if she fried bacon. Right? That was the beginning process to eating green beans was you have to cook at least four pieces of bacon because we're southern folks, right? Uh, and, and the food was uh, not necessarily the most healthy, although she's worked on that in the past, but always really good. Now, here's the deal with mom's dinners. There's a couple things that you had to do. One is uh, you sat in the same place every night, and it didn't matter if you liked the seat or not. It didn't matter if you liked the person sitting next to you or not, because you didn't get to choose them either. You were born into this deal. Mom served what she cooked. There was no menu. The food was placed on the table. You took care of yourself. There was no server. No waiter. After the meal was over, it was expected that you would say, Mom, that was a good meal. Thank you for making it. And that you would take your plate, which had better be empty, and you'd set it over by the sink. And on a rotation, you would take turns who would clean the kitchen. You might do the dishes, you might have a week of that, you might have to wipe down the table, you might even have to help set the table. Now, I say all of that because that's how family dinners happen, right? See, we have taken the family that God has kind of designed, and we've, that's the depiction of the church he's given us, and we've decided we prefer the restaurant instead. Where I get to show up, order what I want, take what I want from a menu, someone serves me, at the end I leave a check and a pretty small tip. Even better, it's a buffet, so I can eat all I want of one thing. Right, I'm giving an example. Um, anytime uh, Carl Carr and I go out to lunch, which is about once a month, I go, we, we go to Taste of Asia buffet. Not because I like Chinese food. I don't really like Chinese food. But here's the secret to the Taste of Asia. They have all-you-can-eat fried shrimp and tater tots. 
I like fried shrimp and tater tots. Now, if every day a buffet was placed in front of me for my meals, you know what I would eat? Something like fried shrimp and tater tots. And over the course of time, I would not be healthy. I'd not be able to do the things that I need to do. Because the restaurant, watch this, they don't care if I'm healthy. They just care that I come back and leave another check. They don't love me. This is a business interaction. Whereas mom, when she prepares the family meal, even though she's frying bacon with the vegetables, she's making sure you eat vegetables. Because she cares about your nutrition. She cares about your growth. She cares about your maturity. She wants to serve you by not serving you all the time, but by telling you you're part of a family. And sometimes that means she gives you Brussels sprouts instead of tater tots. And you've got to roll with that. Because there's two ways to view this thing. And I think these are very common ways of viewing the church. Unfortunately, the biblical view of the family has been largely rejected by most of us. And we've adopted the buffet or the restaurant. Now, look, I'm not bagging on you if that's your viewpoint. The reason you have it is because church leaders saw that we could steal people from other churches if we ran the best restaurant. So that's kind of the whole culture that we live in. And what I'm pleading with you is to look to what the scriptures say and say, love and suffer with one another. That means you have to put up with someone's nonsense, even if it's someone you don't like, even if it's a pastor. Like, if, if you leave here and you didn't like a song, you don't get to complain. Because the Bible just said to be hospitable and loving to one another without grumbling. Like, I don't know if we get this about grumbling, but in the Old Testament, it's one of a few sins that God straight immediately killed people for. Like, if you grumble, there's precedent for an earthquake happening and God swallowing you in and closing the earth like you were never there. Did you know there's biblical precedent for that during the Exodus? That brings a whole new light to grumbling, doesn't it? Grumbling is placed with witchcraft and orgies in the biblical list of sex. That's three times today I said that. It's not a good thing. Grumbling against uh, your pastors, grumbling against your Sunday school teacher, grumbling against the person sitting next to you because they keep bumping you. Grumbling is not acceptable within the house of God. And I want to wrap this up and tell you why it's so important that we don't live that way. It's because Jesus has said that in John 13, he says this in verse 34, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He says it differently in John 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these. He's praying. I love this. He said, I do not ask for these only. He's talking about the 12, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's you and I, right? Jesus praying for us. This is important. What's his prayer for us? That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So all of this community, all of this loving one another, all of this abiding with one another, taking care of each other, showing hospitality. What, what's it about? That the gospel is simply unbelievable to a world that doesn't see this. This is a time for repentance and confession. And I want to throw out a few ideas around this. One is you cannot do this if you only are involved with your local church on Sunday morning. You cannot show love and hospitality and suffer with one another in this format. This You can be polite, but you're no different than the people at the movie theater on, on Saturday night. 
We're polite people in a crowd. Loving one another in this way requires that we engage one another. Uh, that For us, practically, that means we, we want you to plug into a life group. That's not the only way it can happen, but as a church, we've got to have a plan to roll these things out. That's the plan. We've got to get better at it. No, no uh, assumptions that we do this perfectly. We need more people to lead. We need to train more leaders. And we're working at it. And so I'm asking you kind of to be gentle with us as we work on it, but to, to commit to getting engaged. This is what God has called us to. It also, so it indicates one, that we live in community with one another, that we actually love each other this way. The second assumption is that we do it in a way that the world sees it. So we don't get into a huddle alone that never interacts with the world and we all grow, but we don't actively share our faith. Because I want to tell you, if you, if you are relatively moral and biblically literate and you don't actively share your faith, you're an immature, educated Christian. But you're still an immature Christian. So together now, we engage one another and we draw people from, that are lost into this community so they can see the way we love one another so that the gospel, as we preach it in both word and deed, becomes believable. The whole thing uh, is about the gospel moving forth and Jesus' glory being seen and enjoyed throughout all of creation. That's the whole thing. And when we suffer, Peter knows there's a tendency to, to kind of pull away from the community, to pull away from the mission, and to pull away from this new identity. When we do, we're left more devastated than we were. Now, if you're that person and you've done that, I want you to know there's people here that love you and will help you pick up the pieces. We're here. We'll receive you back because this is a gospel-centered community, which means we forgive sin. It means when people fail, they're free to admit they bombed and we still love them. It also means for you, if you're wrestling and you've been keeping it a secret, it's free for you to admit to some people that you're bombing. We can't live a gospel-centered life if we don't receive and extend grace. That's what we're asked to do. Now, let me just wrap this up. If you came here today and you're not a Christian, you showed up um, because a friend's getting baptized or whatever reason... Um, We want you to know that Jesus didn't just die to save us, that he died to save you. And that the promise of him being in the midst of hardship, our savior, our example, and our companion is a promise that's available for you too if you'll trust him. And so I want to make that known to you. And it's a simple thing. You don't don't have to walk down an aisle to do this. You don't have to say a special magical prayer. You need to believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again. And when we sing, when we worship in just a minute, cry out to him, pray. Maybe the first prayer, just just let him know that you've trusted in him, thank him for saving you, and ask him by his spirit to begin to show you how to walk with him. It's That's all it takes, guys. Sometimes we make this so complicated when it's so incredibly simple. And the reason it's simple is that, guys, you don't have to do things to get saved. Jesus has done what's required of you, for you. He has been perfect. He has paid for your sin. And now he's invited you to come to a relationship with him. And that Jesus, that God who saves, that Jesus who walks with us in our suffering is worthy of our praise. Let's pray this morning before we begin a time of worship. Father God, we thank you for your glorious goodness to us. We thank you for your son Jesus, who not only saved us, who is our savior, our companion, and our example. Lord, I pray that we would press into you and press into your people through hardship so the world might believe that you have sent us. So the world might believe that we are yours and that you have come from the Father. We pray that in in that, in embracing the mission of of proclaiming the gospel, embracing the mission of praying for the lost and for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and in embracing our new family, that your gospel would move across this city like wildfire. 
We pray that you would turn our hearts towards you with great passion and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.